I'm Shannon. I'm JP. And I'm Jim, and this is Topic Lords, the only place on the internet where you can hear topics discussed. Uh, Shannon, this is, by the way, there was another Shannon on the show before, but the listeners are just going to have to suck it up <laughs> and, and be confused. Well, Not the same Shannon. Shannon, do you um, would you like to introduce yourself or do you have anything to plug? Sure. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I uh, do. I'm a video essayist, so I have a YouTube channel under Strucci Movies. I'm the film correspondent for the podcast Struggle Session, and I'm a player on the teen superhero body horror actual play podcast Critical Bits. Those are the three main things that I do. Great. Very succinct. Do you Are you on a lot of podcasts? I am, and I also panel at conventions a lot. Oh, yeah. I, yep. So it's like I have to, I don't want to bore people who don't care who I am, but I got to get it, you know. Yeah. Get the, get the info out there. You're, you're just saying you're the master at this. <laughs> I have yes. talked a lot <laughs> about topics. It's good. A lot of nouns. Uh, JP, uh, would you like to introduce yourself or do you have anything to plug? Uh, do I? Uh, I i don't know. I've, I've released a few things like little game mods and stuff like that lately. Uh, let's talk Let's talk about uh, tourism mods. I want to talk about that. Oh, sure. I was I was actually just uh, somebody is working on a, on a piece about uh, walking simulators. So that might and interviewed me uh, a couple of hours ago, actually. Oh, cool. So that might show up soon. Yeah, tourism mods are just mods that, or even just like little cheat codes, or just however you do it, but removing combat or just in general conflict from games so that you can just kind of wander around and, yeah. you know, enjoy, just do whatever whatever you would in a game that otherwise normally has things trying to kill you or things trying to catch you or things trying to go faster than you or just whatever the whatever the conflict of a game is yeah yeah and i've made mods for i don't know like quake and unreal and thief and various other things and it's the the, the, the page on my site about this is just a resource for just you know people people have submitted their own stuff like yeah in any of the bethesda games you can type this little code and then nobody will bother you <laughs> which is kind of how i sell <laughs> it as like nobody will bother you because i feel like in 2019 that's a nice that's a I mean that's that's what I've gone to video games for for my whole life basically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh you guys ready to start some some topics? Hell yeah. yeah. Uh Shannon, you have here um the pressure to monetize hobbies or perform them for social media versus just having hobbies. I was at like a little sort of open circle discussion at a convention at MultiverseCon. And one person there was talking about how they wanted to like they do calligraphy. And they were sort of there to ask us, like, should they do calligraphy on Twitch or do this and that or like record it or put it out there? And they were considering doing that. But then by the end of the whole discussion, they were like, I should just enjoy my calligraphy for myself. <laughs> I shouldn't put it out there. Yeah. Good uh, and I thought that was an interesting discussion. Yeah, I get it because, well, there, there are a few reasons why. But like one of them is just if you can get more than one kind of value out of something, why not do that? You know? If you can maybe enjoy the calligraphy and then at the same time entertain a few people, I think that that is putting maybe feel, feeling like you're putting additional value out into the world. I see the I see the appeal of that. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, like um, I've done Twitch streams before, and while I still feel like they have that value, it's also a lot more pressure on me to perform, and I'm enjoying whatever I'm doing. 
a little bit less as a result. I feel like having a small amount of artistic success has kind of ruined me for having creative hobbies that I just do for myself because I feel like I, any any creative energy I put into uh, into anything, I feel like I should be doing for the benefit of my audience as well. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, I think in, in some ways I'm like 20 years or so deep into this into this pitfall because <laughs> you know I started off just like modding games I guess as a hobby and then some people around me got jobs doing it and I was like oh that seems like a cool job you know well yeah and that's another example of like I'm doing this cool thing and I'm getting paid for it yeah which in your you know in, in my 20s sounded pretty cool and then suddenly it wasn't cool <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, I've spent like, you know, so suddenly it's just the only way you know how to live. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's my only, I mean, in, in my case, you know, maybe this is less the case with like, uh, people with like more for real engineering backgrounds or something. But in my case, it's like, I don't have many trans, I don't have nearly as many transferable skills as somebody who just knows all about enterprise web development. I don't know, even though that, that crap sounds a bun- sounds pretty soul crushing, you know, regardless, a video game designer is a very specific thing. Yeah. And there's definitely a point in your life at which you were like, I need to just buckle down and make some money to support my family or whatever. Like I was um, like a year and a half ago, maybe when I found out my, that my, my wife was pregnant mm. and just, yeah. I was like, I need to, I can't just do this, make no money doing indie games anymore. Like I need mm-hmm. to get a day job, even if this means losing some of the things that I value about my life because there are other things that are more important. Yeah. I think, um, uh, JP, like, I don't know if this is like, I, I guess the purpose of this statement is to be comforting to you, but I think you do know enough programming that you could get a job doing programming. That That's my, I, I have theorized similarly. It's just that like, when I think about the kinds of jobs I could get as a programmer, I just imagine the most soul crushing beginning of Joe versus the volcano type shit, you know, <laughs> it would not be a job that makes you happy. Probably. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So it's not like I have some Elijah at, at, you know, if I ever decide to rage quit game development or something. Yeah. Um, but getting back to a happier, uh, <laughs> facet of this topic, um, I would say, you know, I was trying to think like, do I have anything that I just don't do for anybody but myself or for like, you know, for like one or two other people. And that's probably like play guitar. Like I, mm-hmm. I have a guitar right next to my desk and I'm not good enough probably to like, you know, be like, Hey, I pay people pay attention to me. Like the idea of any of the recordings I've made, like kind of getting out is sort of mortifying to me. Uh, but I can do it well enough that like I enjoy it, you know? And like, if I play and like my partner's around or something and, and you know, then, you know, and they enjoy it. It's like, you know, that's all, that's all I need out of it. I'm not asking that much out of it. I don't have a lot staked on it, you know, but I can still feel like I'm, you know, not absolutely terrible at something. Yeah. That's, so that's a, a good escape hatch is to do something that you feel like isn't good enough to show people. That's true. Yeah. And enjoy it anyway. 
Yeah, and and like you know, I think there's also something to the 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 fact that it's a performance, like game development and and editing video essays uh, too. I'm sure is like just this laborious, just spend days at a time clicking on a computer and stuff, and then like you're slowly putting something together and revising it and all that. Whereas mm. performance, like there is a lot of preparation and practice that it takes to to perform well, obviously. But it does kind of all just come down to like this moment when you're just doing it. And if you're doing it, you know, if you're doing it well enough to keep going, just keep doing it. And I'm, and that's so unlike these like composition related medium media where you're spending like days or weeks or months or years, uh, you know, building something. You're just acting in the moment. And it's like that's such a different brain mode. And I really value it. Yeah, yeah. And that's something like specifically about music. I don't know what it is about music that makes this true, but you can um, produce a song like like realistically, you could make a song that is um, that would be considered a complete and finished work in an evening. Um, yeah. In fact, yeah. In, the, in the most in the most um, one of the one of the weirdest edge cases is you can make a song in the length of time that the song is. Mm hmm. Right. Yeah. And this is like one of the reasons that if you look at uh, game credits on Wikipedia, uh, they will have like, you know, the the creative director uh, and they will have like the the, the lead art, the, the art director is yeah. what I'm trying to think of. And then they'll just have composer and that's just one person. Like right. the entire audio team for a, AAA, for a AAA game could realistically be one person in charge of an entire sense. Mm-hmm. No, I'm on a tabletop podcast and we've done live sh I've been doing tabletop live shows. Um and it's Yeah, now you can't play board games by yourself either. <laughs> now I have to record all of it. <laughs> I thought I, I thought it was really interesting, both uh Matt Mercer, who does Critical Role, and Matt Coville, who's like a really big D D YouTuber who also has some of his own um actual play type streaming stuff. They're they're friends and they were tweeting about like well, we only do our games for our players. The audience is a secondary concern, um, which sounds nice. But like when we record our show, why are we recording it if it's not for an audience? I would just be playing it and not be stressed out about the story and just be having fun with my friends. It's like to me, that's like a full production that we take a lot of pride in. And I thought it was interesting because Critical Role is like huge. And his whole thing is like, well, my players come first. It's like, that's nice. But like, then why do you have a camera there? Why wouldn't you just have fun with your friends? Like, I didn't really understand that perspective on it. Because I have games with my friends that are just for us, that I would never want to be recorded or be out there, that I'm more comfortable in. Versus, like, this is a really fun performance and, like, radio play that we're making. And to me, they're completely different things. I think within a, within a, within a single creative person, those impulses to, like, project what you're doing out into the world... Versus to like just keep it within this domain of self-satisfaction and actualization. I think those are like there is kind of a tension between those forces mm -hmm. that I think it gets to the heart of this whole question of like monetizing or doing it, you know, super publicly and stuff. And yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I, to, to give a silly example, like over over the Thanksgiving weekend, like I didn't have any big grand like go somewhere with a lot of people and feast and stuff so i was just kind of like around the apartment and um uh an update for for the game for a game that i just play kind of regularly is just sort of a 
practice, uh, No Man's Sky had just come out and I started like building something and I was like, oh man, I could, at this point I could totally build uh, E1M1 from Doom. You know, and then I was like, well, crap, I'm I'm doing this. And at some point I just felt it flip into like, I'm doing this and I'm going to put it on the Internet. And probably I, you know, it's like I saw the next eight hours of my life sort of play out because I was like, oh, crap. Yeah, this is going like if Sean Murray, one of the game's developers, retweets this thing that I made, it's then going to get on like game news sites and all that. And so it's gone from like, I'm playing a video game dorking around to, well, I guess this is like going to be on Kotaku or PC Gamer or something within the span of like, you know, like eight to 12 hours or so start to finish. Uh, And so, and just feeling that flip between I am a human, I'm just a dude sitting around, screwing around in a video game. It's like like you're making a sandcastle and the sandcastle suddenly ends up viral on <laughs> exactly it really is yeah it is it's a sandcastle in so many ways yeah so are you guys ready for another topic yeah all right jp you have uh if you could create a five acre island in the middle of the remote south pacific ocean what would you use it for yeah uh i don't know how much context i actually have for this it's i guess it came out of two things one was the aforementioned video game no man's sky where it's an infinite universe and you can fly around to different planets and land anywhere on them and sometimes there'll just be like an ocean planet with like these tiny little islands and there's nothing stopping you from just like building a little house there and being like okay i have this little what does that mean uh and then also just i remembered as i was submitting as i was writing that topic however long ago was that this is this is actually like a, a current geopolitical issue in that uh, I think like the Chinese military was doing something with like adding land in the middle of like the Pacific not, not in the middle of the basically like in a point at a at a place that was strategically valuable to them to basically create an island where previously there was just water so like a like a real island that's coming up off of the sea floor. Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think it was basically like taking, like finding an atoll or just whatever, like a little shallow sp- spot in the ocean is, and like dumping dirt there. And yeah, and rocks. creating land that then mm-hmm. you can do all the things that you can do with land, and uh, yeah, and so that's obviously kind of wild that you know, and then all of a sudden, you know, neighboring countries are like, "What? Like, are you allowed to do this? What's you know?" <laughs> It's almost like power gaming or something. But yeah, I was just thinking on an individual basis, you know, because that that's, you know, I I can't think like a nation state, but, uh, (laughs) and I don't actually have a good answer for it. I don't have like some cool ass like thing that I would do with an island. I I would feel kind of conflicted about even doing so, even if it wouldn't have an ecological uh, impact or anything, you know, if I could do it sort of harmlessly, because even just creating a little bit of land, it's like you're sort of responsible for an ecosystem. If mm-hmm. people go there, I would sort of feel responsible for what, you know, I would want people to be, I wouldn't want somebody to cause a fire festival to happen on that <laughs> tiny island. And just what, you know, just the weird feeling of responsibility. I mean, it's, I guess it's a little akin to like creating a game world, but, uh, but yeah, I don't know. Other people I think could do a, could be less neurotic and maybe just create a cool party island or something, but yeah. Like the best idea that I have so far is to win bets that there's an island in this place. (laughs) Right, yeah. 
Yeah, I think I would want to leave it alone. Are we, so, are we talking like uh, tropical? I, I didn't think through it that far. Like, you know, I guess, yeah, if you like, maybe it could spring up with like a, you know, an appropriate for that part of the planet little ecosystem in it, you know, which would be mm-hmm. like a small number of little, you know, some plants and some animals and just whatever. Or it could be like a completely flat sandbar that you could just build something off of. I don't know. Yeah. I would want to shoot movies there. <laughs> Yeah, my location. I don't know. Right, who could stop you? Yeah, no one. Ha ha. Yeah, it would. Right, like uh, that was that was the other thing is like if it's out in the middle of the ocean, it's going to be a huge pain in the ass to get to. Yeah. Right. There's like that. There's a there's a video on YouTube that's like, what is the most remote location on Earth? The the most remote land location on Earth, and it is something like you know, it's in it's either in the middle of the Indian of the South Indian Ocean. Or in the middle of the Pacific, and like, yeah, it's like the logistics of even getting to that place are is just ridiculous. You know, you would need to like charter a ship, and like it would be very dangerous and costly, and yeah, yeah. I don't really have anything to say about this, but um, I was just on a tropical island in the uh, in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, Ooh. so we could segue into that if you like. Oh, cool. Yeah. Uh, So the topic here is level design lessons from Hawaii, which is kind of, it was interesting being on this. I was on the big island. We we went there like as a vacation kind of thing for like five or six days, which turned out to be like, you know how vacations are stressful. It's even more so if you have a a one-year-old in tow. Gosh, I can imagine. so, So like, I'm still like, Kind of, it was a, like a week after the vacation where I feel like I had recovered enough to be able to do work again. But there was a lot of interesting, there were a lot of interesting things that I noticed. Like, so just being on this island that's about 90 miles across, you can always see the volcano, the peak of the island. And I, that was super interesting to me, just from a, like, one of the things that I noticed in a lot of like early 3D platformers is that there is usually, in the middle of each level, there is like a centerpiece that you can always see from everywhere in the level. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and it's a way to like ground you to like, to help you remember where you are relative to always relative to a singular thing. And it felt a little bit like that in terms of like, yeah, I, can, yeah. I always know where I am relative to the, um, to the volcano. On the other hand, like not knowing because the, the island is round and cause you're always moving like, you're always moving in a kind of a polar coordinate fashion around the island. Right. <laughs> um, it's really hard to keep track of which way is east and west. Like in California, the ocean is always to the west. But yeah. uh, in Hawaii, the ocean is every direction. <laughs> yeah. Basically. <laughs> San, uh, San Francisco geographically has a little bit of that because in the middle is Twin Peaks and Sutro Tower. And from many but not all places in the city – if you look in the right direction, you will see Sutro Tower looming up, you know, and that's always that that's kind of night, nice, you know, like I think people develop this sort of psychological relationship to Sutro Tower uh, who live here. Yeah. You know, and, and yeah, like it sort of feels it's almost like this. It's like a friendly giant or something, you know, it, it, I, I don't think too many people have <laughs> negative associations with it. Otherwise, it would be more like the Combine Citadel from Half-Life 2. But, um, (laughs) but yeah, uh, and, and San Francisco is more squared, you know, like it's on a peninsula basically. 
So, and the, the city of San Francisco is basically the seven mile by seven mile square at the, at the tip of that. And so it, it has a, a very nice cardinality to it. You know, it gets a little wonky in places where there's hills and, you know, diagonal grids or whatever. But yeah, like I think it's it's easier to orienteer in. It's also just a huge, just urban center, so it's just a huge mess. Right. So it's not it's not fun to be on be on like an island the way that an island is. But I thought you were going to say San Francisco has a little bit of this because there's water on both sides. There's yeah, water to the east sides. and to the west, so that's yeah. that's confusing too. Oh right, yeah. Each bit of that water, like the the inner bay feels pretty different from like the north, you know, the marina and Presidio and stuff. And then, you know, yeah, I don't know. They end up being their own little landmarks and biomes because of all the particulars around them. One of the things I wanted to do for the Frog Fractions 2 ARG was to hide something at the the base of the Sutro Tower. Um, Oh, yeah. And I have no idea, like realistic, like... Like in real life, what is at the base of the Sutro Tower? Is it even accessible to, to people? And I found out in Watch Dogs 2, if you try to go to the base of the Sutro Tower, security guards start shooting at you. Yeah, that's I can confirm <laughs> that that's that, that's 100% accurate. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> no, uh, there's like a so there's yeah, there's a bunch of like uh, cell towers and stuff like at the base of it as well as at the top. And there's like, yeah, there is some sort of like quake-like structure down there. Not earthquake, but quake the video. You know, it's like this slab concrete right. sort of thing. Uh, actually, yep, the f- that's in the game. Yeah, yeah. The first time I went there, actually, uh, coming up on it, uh, we ran into goats. It was a herd of it was wow. a herd of goats that had been that is is a is a herd of goats for hire, and they right. you can you can call you can contact these people who have this herd of goats and they will take them around. I think Google brought them to their campus at various points to like, and they basically just eat the grass. And like, if, if they have yeah. like tall scrub or something, then they'll, those goats will just fricking whittle it down. And then, you know, and so, yeah, we saw these goats and they were just kind of chilling at the base of Sutro tower because I guess they wanted to like, make sure that that stuff didn't catch fire, you know, once it got hot and dry and all that. So yeah, it's interesting. And yeah, there's there's a there's a there's a forest right around the base of it that's actually very pretty to walk through. I and mean, then you kind of pop out, you know, uh, over by you know yeah up up in the, the inner Richmond basically. That's cool. Yeah, I don't know if there's anything like that in Atlanta. I know Nashville is pretty small, and the AT and T building kind of looks like Batman's head, so they call it the Batman building. <laughs> <laughs> so like wherever you are in like Nashville, you'll see it. Um, but I would like the first time I was more like had to be more aware of city geography, I guess, was when I started coming to, to Dragon Con in Atlanta, which is five different hotels in downtown Atlanta. Whoa. And I had never uh, it, it's even bigger now. But at that point, I was like 19. I didn't get into big cities a whole lot. And it was like learning to orient yourself. It's like, OK, the Westin is over there. I could see it. I have to go. Yeah. You know, I think that was the first time I ever really felt like that or felt like some kind of comfort or orientation according to buildings. Right. Yeah. Landmarks. And, and, and it was specifically these five hotels that you learned to orient yourself around. I still forget. Okay. <laughs> I have a terrible sense of direction. A lot of it is just like, okay, I can see this here. So this means this is in this direction. The others spread out over a few blocks in downtown Atlanta. It's a pretty big area. Yeah. Please tell me that there's a map that they hand you that's printed on parchment that says Realms of Dragon Con. Uh, <laughs> I wish. Yeah. I think the, the West, it's like tall and it's like a, a big cylinder and there's like an outside elevator. And so that one sticks out a whole lot. Mm. 
And that was the one that's like, okay, we gotta go this way. Especially when uh, Dragon Con is a very big party convention. So as I got older, I would drink a lot. And then it would be very imperative to know where I was going, stumbling around. Yeah, which tower you're headed to. Mm -hmm. The other thing that was interesting about Hawaii, there are just lava fields everywhere. Like there used to be, it used to be that uh, you could go there anytime and see just like actual liquid lava in the uh, in the caldera at the top of the um at the top of the mountain which Damn, is a yeah. national park mm -hmm. and it was still incredible at the top of the mountain you know you go there and you you're looking out over this broad open steaming base of just solid rock it's kind of incredible uh but like there is uh lava fields like hardened lava fields everywhere like that's just a really common element of the geography yeah that's hella cool yeah, that's really cool. We stayed in a place called the, the the town is just called Volcano near the top of the volcano, and it is very clearly it was very clearly like just human spaces that were barely cut out of the jungle. Like it was every time, like uh, right outside the road, right outside like the yard of the place you're staying, the house you're staying in. It is just super thick, endless jungle. Yeah, it's really neat. Um, at one point, we passed by a, a truck that was with this weird like spinning cutting contraption that was cutting the jungle back as it drove down the road. And then we saw it take out a street sign. That was nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but like at, at one point, we were staying in this place that we received uh, two visitors from, from the jungle. One of them was a, a feral cat who came up and, and ran away as soon as th he saw that, that we were... Th there were people in the house and the other were a set of um i think they were pheasants like colors Ooh. i didn't recognize oh, yeah yeah um, uh and we um they were clearly like looking to the humans to be fed and we ended up giving them cheerios because that's what we had i don't know if cheerios are actually good for pheasants or not it's, it doesn't sound like the worst thing you could have fed them yeah better than bread <laughs> i just wanted to make these birds happy <laughs> yeah yeah you know at some point long long ago there was a tropical fowl, right? Like a pheasant or something. And I want to say mm -hmm. that they were originally native to like Southeast Asia, maybe or something. Uh, and then mm -hmm. humans domesticated them gradually in the way that humans domesticated dogs and cats and stuff like that. And then there were chickens. Yeah. And yeah, but the idea of like there being like original chickens that, you know, were, <laughs> and they weren't called chickens, you know, I mean, like, you know, I, I think chicken became the name for domestic, you know, and, and whatever language. Yeah. But just the idea yeah. of like us creating this species of food animal. I mean, th there are there are loose chickens everywhere in Hawaii just hanging out. Right. Um, yeah. And it. Like seeing the the variety of of the these birds and the when you when you have this image in your head of like farm chickens, it's almost like a cartoon that these animals couldn't possibly exist in the wild. But these, the animals that are like the chickens that are loose in Hawaii are clearly like these are wild birds. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they've got spikes on their feet. Yeah, they're little dinosaurs. Don't some get like violent? Like, aren't they a problem attacking people in some places? Like gangs of wild chickens. <laughs> oh <my laughs> I don't know if God. I'm making that up. Let me Google it. That sounds realistic. I, I've definitely heard about roosters being even just like your standard like farm rooster being violent and territorial. You know, they will definitely. Yeah, I, I would. I would definitely. I mean, I wouldn't mess with any animal really, but like, I would neither. Yeah, but like a, a male like feral rooster, like that is not that is a little dinosaur, and it will. Yeah, it will Jurassic Park your ass if you mess with it. <laughs> 
<laughs> There's some TripAdvisor post from three years ago. It says that uh, her, this person's mom tells stories when she was younger where the chickens would attack her ankles in droves, pecking and sometimes making her ankles oh, bleed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And someone made a Hitchcock joke yeah, about uh, Hawaii. So yeah, it's 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 definitely Hawaii is definitely a piece of video game level design, including creature hostile creatures. Right. It has lava, <laughs> hostile creatures, and good landmarking. It's you can ship that on PlayStation today. Are <laughs> uh, you guys ready for another topic? Sure. Yeah. So this is a write-in. The 2012 Oakland Athletics adapted "Movin' Like Bernie" into their celebration routines after Coco Crisp. Played the song for third baseman Brandon Ng in the team's clubhouse before a game. I don't know this song, and I had assumed "Moving Like Bernie" was like Bernie Sanders' campaign song or something like that. <laughs> but apparently, it's from um, this weekend at Bernie's too. <laughs> what? Oh, so so is is moving like Bernie uh, specifically in reference to a puppeted cadaver? Yes. Yeah. Uh, if you okay. would like to take a moment to listen to this, which I'm going to do right now, because I okay, the official moving like Bernie lyrics from eight years ago. It's spelled different though. I don't know which video to click. I, I recognized almost zero of the proper nouns from from that from that topic. I mean, San Francisco Giants, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, I was just like, what do these words mean? Oh, this is a um, this is a G funk track. Yeah, and I can I can totally imagine the uh, the dance move. Uh, there's one video that appears to be just some <laughs> guy like goofing in a target. But like, okay, so is Coco Crisp like a recording artist? Like, I I feel so old right I'm, now I'm because I'm pretty sure Coco Crisp is a baseball player. Oh, okay, okay, all right. I don't feel as old, strangely, then not knowing. <laughs> well, yeah, you've because you've, you've never known sports stuff. Yeah, I just know it as a. I, I I did know sports stuff for about a year in the late '80s when I like <laughs> followed professional baseball closely. Uh, what what prompted that, and what prompted you to stop? Oh, I mean, I I was playing baseball at the time, and my my dad is a sports columnist, so you know it was it was sort of everywhere, and like you know. So I, I was aware of sports and, you know, I, I, I could probably name most of the professional sports teams if I set my mind to it. But, you know, there's all like that. There's all that work involved with like staying current, you know, where like knowing how teams are doing, what all players they have, which players are like, you know, exceptional and worth watching and all that kind of stuff. And just, you know, the stakes of like a given season, you know, there's there's just a huge amount of like information involved in staying current and that's that's obviously the fun of it but like investing the time in that you know i just kind of disappeared into other stuff yeah yeah it's a it's like any other hobby you need to have the time for it Uh, my wife um played a bunch of softball as a kid and was a big baseball person for a long time Mm. not so much anymore and i always get the feeling she kind of misses it Uh, but we went to a oakland athletics game i don't know 2016 maybe and Relevant to this topic, I remember being interested to note that every at bat, every like uh, home team at bat had a little um, snippet of a of a pop song uh, and like a an animated uh, an animation that played out on the on whatever you call the the screen they have above the stadium that everyone yeah can the see. jumbotron 
It was just like a, it kind of reminded me of like pro wrestler entrances. Like, I thought that was neat. I thought that was just like a little bit of a little personal touch. I bet like, I bet every, every one of those players that picked their own song or whatever. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody in, yeah. Having, having an anime theme song. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to think of ways I can have an anime theme song aside from just like <laughs> playing something on my phone constantly as I walk around. <laughs> yeah, as you as you show up at the manga and wall scroll store with your katana. <laughs> right. For a while I was watching and I don't think this is happening anymore, but there was a um, Binding of Isaac League racing um which was a competitive like it was basically esports Binding of Isaac, which is a weird <laughs> thing to do with a roguelike, but the way they yeah, handled yeah. it was like they would um I think they were doing best two out of three races and um you can reset at any time. So, like, if you don't like the items you're getting, you could just immediately reset your current run um, and try for something That's better. Interesting. And it mm, seemed like it was okay. a reason. Yeah, it seemed like it was a reasonably well, reasonably well balanced contest. But um, the way it worked technically was that like there would be two people streaming for a single person who would then like combine the streams into uh, one piece of output that then they would have like color commentary over. Yeah, and. Yeah. Before they like as as they were being introduced, there were these they would play these animated gifs. They would like put animated gifs on their screen instead of binding of Isaac, just as like the equivalent of like the pro wrestler entrance. Like this is my this is my flourish <laughs> that comes before I before I perform. I thought that was really neat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Would would the two players there be running from the same random seed? So they were basically like kind of on equal ground, or can you not do that with that game? Well, I think you can with mods. I don't know if the mods existed at the time, but no, they did not do that. They were just um, ah. they were just letting the random numbers fall where they may, and that that was part of the reason why they have like two out of three in the reset rule. Yeah. All right. Shall we move on to another topic? Sure. Sure. All right, JP. Uh, you have here. Fictions that, as a throwaway gag, exist within their own worlds. For example, rem- Remembrance of the Daleks or JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. The the JoJo's one is is sort of debatable, but uh, so there's there's an episode, you know, Doctor Who originally before it came back last decade. Uh, Doctor Who originally ran from like 1963 to like 1989. Yeah, which is just you know a stupefying amount of time. Yeah, and all kinds of different actors play, you know, it's just multiple eras of British BBC TV actors and stuff. But there's this one episode uh, from like the 80s, uh, it's a Sylvester McCoy, uh, I guess, uh, Seventh Doctor episode, where he's back in time and it's 1963, i.e. the year that the show first aired. And they're in like someone's, you know the Daleks are chasing them or something and they're in someone's apartment hiding out or figuring out what to do. And they, they, they leave or something. And then the camera pans over to a television that has a, um, a period authentic 1963 BBC one bumper with the announcer, you know, with like the logo on the screen and the announcer saying like, and now airing a new science fiction program, Doctor, and then right as the announcer says, would have said who, it cuts away. And it's just a cute, you know, it's mostly just a little throwaway gag, but they are sort of positing or at least dangling this idea that like in the Doctor Who universe, there is a show called Doctor Who 
and what is it about like you know it's yeah <laughs> yeah and then yeah like there's another thing like in early in the second arc of jojo's like there i think like in the anime specifically uh a young joseph joestar is like reading i think he's reading he's reading shonen jump and yeah multiple characters <laughs> which is which is the you know the 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 manga uh i forget what you call it like monthly anthology yeah, yeah yeah the monthly yeah the manga monthly that jojo's appeared in, weekly in japan yeah um yeah. And, and so just, you know, and so in I'm maybe in that universe's version, I mean, first of all, it would be anachronistic because I think that scene takes place in like the 1930s or something. But um, but yeah, just the idea of like the fiction exists. Yeah. And like uh, the idea of, yeah, your your own story is happening in your fictional world. And what does that mean? And like, are they diverging? And can you catch up with your with with real time? You know, yeah, I'm sure there's all kinds of like metafiction, magical realism type stuff you can do with it. But I was curious as to if there were a any other of those things, and b what the heck. I've never seen it, but I've heard there's like a supernatural episode where they go to a supernatural convention. <laughs> like it was like really hardcore meta with fan stuff, and they have like a fan fiction episode or something. Like they really, I think those writers play with that a lot. But I never got into supernatural. Uh, I was just literally, I was like at a panel at a convention recently where they talked about that for a long time. I was like, that's interesting. <laughs> but that's like I, hardcore. They're like talking to people cosplaying as themselves or something like that. Max Payne Two has a um. One of the things Max Payne Two does is it has TVs that you encounter throughout the game that has um, a number of different um, in-world TV series that have, like you see it, like a two-minute yeah, episode yeah. of Address mm -hmm. Unknown, which is the, I guess it's the Twin Peaks ripoff. Yes, yeah. Um, and then you, I, I don't remember what what the name of this one is, but it's, there is one that is a, like serial number filed off equivalent of the Max Payne 1 story. So that's not exactly what we're talking about, but it yeah, is like a yeah. similar idea. Another example that comes to mind is actually the opposite of this, where um, in in Grand Theft Auto games, sometimes songs on the radio refer to cities that are what the cities in Grand Theft Auto are stand-ins for. So like mm -hmm. when a song on the radio refers to New York City, which does not exist in that world. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It would say Liberty City. Right, yeah. And they didn't like they didn't do the um the simlish thing where they paid the recording artist to re record the song in, in their own weird vernacular. Yeah, that would be that would be high investment. I mean those games are really high budget though, so like it's uh Yeah, they could do it, right. They could be like, Okay, let's get, you know, there's a fifty cent song playing here and let's get him to mention San Andreas or whatever, yeah. Yeah. Although they do have like San Andreas um, had radio stations that played like old school country. So like I bet a lot of those artists are dead. Mm -hmm. You can get someone to fake their voice maybe. That's true. You try. Yeah. I am kind of wondering if – so yeah, I'm, 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 I'm relatively, you know, skeptical of the potential of a lot of forms of machine learning and all that kind of stuff, you know, for, for various reasons. But – uh but you know the whole like deep fakes thing. I, I've I've specifically wondered if audio, like basically human voice deep fakes, are right around the corner, or you know, is that actually like a tractable 
machine learning slash, you know, just general computer computer processing challenge? Or is it actually, yeah, like, is how feasible is that tech? Because, you know, voice acting is something where, that's something where, yeah, if you really could write a script and then have Kurt Cobain or, you know, anybody who's any anybody with a distinct i mean it would be especially hard for songs because mm-hmm. there's all kind there's so much more information coming through with that it's like you a know. kurt cobain vocaloid <laughs> yeah have. yeah basically yeah exactly like right could you do like sort of a vocaloid text to speech deep fake type thing that would be pretty darn convincing because yeah like in in uh in the thief games you know um the voice actor who who voices the main character, uh, Garrett, you know, is this beloved voice actor. God, why am I blanking on his name? I've 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 worked on stuff that were, that he did voice work for, but um, you know, and when fans create fan missions, they always try to like if there's a piece of Garrett VO that they can chop up and make it sound like Garrett is talking about something in their <laughs> fan mission. Right. That's like a huge win, you know, and and it doesn't sound mm-hmm. totally cheesy. And yeah, it occurred like I was thinking about that one day, and then thinking, and then hearing about deep fakes, and thinking like, damn, it would this this is a potentially extremely troubling labor situation, obviously, because voice mm-hmm. actors make their living by getting in a booth and getting paid to like say specific stuff. Yeah. Like if, if, if someone could just like feed some lines into a program and then that voice actor to be, to be clear, I I think that it might be able to do well in certain situations, but it also, um, my sibling is, is an actor and I've talked about this with them sometimes where like an actor makes so many different decisions that inform what even if it's just a voice only performance mm-hmm. that inform what they're saying. So I, you know, I, I don't think you would be able to completely I obviously I, I definitely don't think that you would be able to replace real actors or anything. But yeah, yeah. if you want a dead person to say a single sentence or something and you can kind of train it with existing stuff and you know kind of graft it onto the skeleton of a sound alike or something. I mean I guess yeah like uh, Carrie Fisher and Peter Cushing in uh that Star Wars movie from a couple of years ago. You know, that was another that they they actually took their freaking likeness and that was pretty damn weird. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh I, I wouldn't be surprised if we see the equivalent of the 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 video deepfakes in the next ten years. I'm not sure the labor situation is as dire as you think though, because someone still needs to act the line. Um if it if it works like the video ones do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Like it would mean that like that individual actor, like you'd probably have to license their voice. Well, hopefully, you know, you can imagine an, a very exploitative context in which mm-hmm. a company basically like, okay, we have recreated Ian McKellen in a can and we didn't consult Ian McKellen. He makes no money off of this. Oh, like a, I mean, like a clean room, dirty room kind of situation or just, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I actually have no idea what the legalities like. Yeah. Cause theoretically you could track down like, hours upon hours of a given actor saying stuff and then you could like you know synthesize that into basically like a sound font right. for a, a particular actor's voice and all the different ways that they say different things and all that yeah the the equivalent of like the the i don't remember if that's actually the phrase people use clean room dirty room but the equivalent would be like someone the engineers who were working on the Ian McKellen vocaloid had never actually heard Ian McKellen's voice but the 
there there are people who have who are like measuring the characteristics of it and they send this raw data like every little detail about his vocal tics over to the people who are building the vocaloid who um have deniability because they don't know what the original sounds like yeah i mean i'm guessing if a, if a company had the resources and and the motivation to do that kind of thing I think in a lot of cases, you know, unless there were some pre-existing regulation, they probably wouldn't bother with that sort of, yeah, because in, in computer reverse engineering, obviously the clean room, dirty room thing is super important because there's like a well-codified legal framework mm -hmm. for that as an artifact, you know, whereas right. like just right. the timbre of a person's voice, essentially, that seems like it's, I, it, it seems like there is not an existing regulatory framework around it. Someone's voice as a copyrighted asset, a recording of someone's voice as a copyrighted asset, there absolutely is a legal framework around it. But I'd be curious as to if, you know, just the more vague, like, general identity thing is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're going to find out. Yeah. Yeah. Just wait. Uh, you guys ready for another topic? Let's do it. Uh, Shannon, you have um, first time you tried your favorite foods, especially if you first tried them as an adult. I think I was like 20 the first time I had Thai food. Oh, yeah. And I had Masaman curry and I was like, what? Also, sorry, my cousin's dog is... No, don't worry about it. Uh, yeah, I, I love... Uh, Thai food is my favorite food now. My parents didn't dislike food from other countries or whatever. We just didn't grow up in, around any Thai restaurants or anything like that. Or any Indian restaurants, I don't think. It's usually just like Mexican or American food. And then I ate it and I was like, what is this? Oh my God, this is so good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, The um, looking back on it, I'm pretty surprised. But I didn't have Indian food until my mid-20s. And I was worried about what I was getting myself into. And I'd had Thai food before. So, like if they'd like one way to reassure me would have been that it's not that different from Thai. But like I just had, you know, I had the most Americanized uh, Indian food dish that they had, you know, chicken tikka masala and mm -hmm. it was it was amazing. Yeah. I had a similar, I, I'm pretty sure I had a similar experience when I was, I don't know, maybe 21 and I, yeah, it was actually in Madison, Wisconsin, not that, a place not necessarily known for its Indian food, but yeah, it was, I guess just growing up in Texas, like there probably were Indian restaurants, but like living with my parents and stuff, I guess, who, who weren't, you know, who didn't know anything about it or weren't, you know, adventurous enough or whatever. So yeah, it kind of makes sense that it's like the first place where I lived on my own and could just decide whatever the hell I wanted to eat, you know, and with, and buy it with my own money and et cetera. And so, yeah, like I, yeah, there was just an Indian buffet place, probably a very standard one. And yeah, I had like, I don't know, chicken curry and like some samosas and stuff. And just, you know, I was just like, I, I just discovered a new continent, like pretty much literally, you know, and I was like, wow, yeah. okay, yeah, this is cool. And yeah, there was also a Nepali place in Madison that I think might still be around and they were very tasty. So yeah, I mean, that whole like, you're not living with your parents anymore and you're just like, you can eat whatever the heck you want. Yeah, I, I had a lot of good little discoveries like that. I think too, when I went to college, my college friends generally were not as picky of eaters as my high school friends or they were more adventurous or they wanted to try new things. And that was helpful as well. Because I mean, in college, I would go to places alone too. I didn't care. But it's also nice. Like oh, I, I start, I don't even remember when I first, because I first tried sushi when I was 14 and I did not like it. 
Um, yeah. But then in my 20s, I, I'm like pescatarian. And I was like, well, let me try this some more. And I was like, oh, my God, this is so good. And there was nowhere that had sushi where I, like I went to high school in a very rural area. There's probably not a single place you could get sushi there even now. Do you think when you were, you said you were 14, do you think mm-hmm. you just had bad sushi? I think I wasn't used to the way seaweed tastes or the way, or the texture of it or the um, the way the rice is flavored. I think it was just too new. Yeah. It wasn't like anything I'd ever had and I didn't really know what to expect and you're kind of like culturally, culturally conditioned to see raw meat as gross and as yep. like a threat to your health. Yeah. Well, yeah, similarly, like... Um, I have a friend who uh, works with I, – I, I don't remember the actual nationality. I think they're Pakistani people who – well, like when he goes to the work cafeteria and gets salads, they'll give him the side eye uh, because where they're from, raw vegetables, that's a way to eat a bunch of bugs by accident. Oh, <laughs> yeah. But uh, sushi is um, another example of like you can get you can get really Americanized sushi like it's really – engineered specifically for the American palate or the Western palate at least. I actually have never actually gotten past that stuff. Like I just stick with that when I go to a sushi place. Like I also I still... don't have a lot of money and a lot of the nicer stuff is not cheap. Or right. a spicy tuna yep. roll is five dollars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's a good way to ease yourself in if you're if you're not sure what's going on. Just get a mm-hmm. just get a avocado roll. Yeah, sushi, yeah, it is kind of, right, it's pretty challenging to somebody who grew up with, like, a really standard American selection of foods, yeah. And, and yeah, and, and also, yeah, sushi varies in quality, and when it's bad, it's just really bad. So, if you have a bad right. initial experience, I think, man, so many people, like, people's food preferences are so shaped by, like, initial contact with a particular type of food being bad mm-hmm. um yeah like my we, we never ate brussels sprouts growing up and i think it's mainly just because my mom had them a few times as a kid when she was a kid and they were just kind of boiled and flavorless and so like oh no so like, or just yeah it was it was you know they weren't prepared well and yeah who knows what what they were even like in the 50s and um and yeah so like last last uh holiday we we went to like a local farmer's market and I like, you know, showed her how to like basically like roast them with like olive oil and, you know, just it was just like olive oil and salt and just, you know, super basic. But they turned out really well. They were good sprouts and they, you know, they got that kind of creaminess in the center and sort of crispy on the outside. Mm. And and yeah, it was really enjoyable just seeing vicariously her like realizing, oh, these are actually really good if you prepare them well you know, and it's like, yeah, it's cool. Like, you know, it's, it's never too late to, uh, to reverse a, a bad food experience from, from long ago. Yeah. But also, we also know, um, I was reading about this, that Brussels sprouts are less bitter now than they were 40 years yeah, ago. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, from like selective cultivation or, or. Yes. Yeah. 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 From, from they've, they've bred them that way. That's interesting. Cause I, I've always liked them. Um, but I can imagine if they're really bitter, they would be kind of gross. Right. And bitter and like, if they're just boiled, that's, it's a real bummer of a way to eat, eat almost any vegetable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Have you guys tried the cosmic crisp yet? What is that? It's uh, an apple that just launched, uh, oh, yeah. days ago as we, as we record this. Oh. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. We talked about it, uh, the last time, the last time I was on here. No, I haven't gotten to, I haven't. Yeah. I, I wasn't lined up on launch day for this apple. 
Yeah, I went to a grocery store. They didn't have it. I assume I had to pre-order. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you want to get the, the, the pre-order bonuses to this Apple. All right. So, yeah, somebody's homework is to track down. And what's it called again? The Cosmic... Cosmic Crisp. Cosmic Crisp, yeah. And it's a Honey Crisp variant, so I'll probably like it. Oh, yeah. Those are great. Are you guys ready for another topic? Shoot. Yeah. So, I wanted to talk about... Um, I watched a movie on Netflix called Time Trap. Um, just because I have a thing for for time travel kind of kind of fiction, this is a story that is, I think, a really well constructed sci fi premise where they like they take uh, the idea of um, a place that has time dilation, and they really like think through the ramifications of like what would happen if someone like went into this place and then came out, you know, 10,000 years later or whatever. Mm -hmm. I am kind of reluctant to recommend it because it also is like, I I, I get the sense that there were like middle-aged people who were trying to write teenagers so that the movie would appeal to teenagers and like the characters are kind of like aggravating and off-putting. Um, and I guess what I wanted to segue into from that idea was, um, aside from that, like half recommendation, actually, before we do that, like what time travel or time loop or time dilation movies do you guys like? I like Primer. Oh, Primer's great. Primer, I have a very interesting personal relationship with because I saw it in my twenties and I related very heavily to these engineers like and I was like this is how me and all my engineer friends think. <laughs> um and then I saw it again like 10 years later and I was like these guys have no moral compass whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> and I was right both times. Right. <laughs> and and it's like a it, but it's also like a the puzzle box nature of it is kind of a trap for the engineer kind of mindset. Have you seen those those fan made graphics for Primer? The fan made charts of of all the plots and stuff in it. Yeah, that stuff's like. I think I have. Yeah, it's super interesting. Yeah. Except that, like, like when you actually dig in and like figure out what the it 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 feels like the movie is trying to ask you to solve the problem to like solve like what actually happened, but doing so isn't that rewarding. Like you don't get like a, an aha moment from it. You just get like, yeah, I think this graph works out. (laughs) I solved the math problem that Shane Carruth gave us. Right. Um, whereas like the other lesson of like, of this, the, the, the primer being like the, the ethics primer as intended by the director, um, I think that kind of falls by the wayside because people are, are thinking about the uh, the more in your face puzzle instead. Yeah, it's true, and and I mean, right? That's a that's the sort of quandary that the characters of the film sort of fall into, you know. So it is sort of self reflective in that sense, and I can I can imagine a lot of people who responded to that film had the similar kind of like identification with them when they first saw it, you know, and then yeah looking back on it now. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I, I forget who coined this term and if it was like a specific piece where they, they advanced this, this term, but uh puzzle TV, 
Mm-hmm. Oh, sure. You know, this idea of storytelling where it's like, okay, we're putting out all these little pieces and you can, and there's a real mystery here and you can figure it all out like a, you know, and just put all of the pieces together because we have given you all of the pieces, you know, and, and that being sort of symptomatic of like the way that of a certain very monetizable storytelling style nowadays, it might've been in reference to uh, Twin Peaks season three, which is the opposite of that. It just, it's just like, if you, you cannot, you can dig around in this for the rest of your damn life. <laughs> you will not be able to put this together like a puzzle. Mm-hmm. It will just fucking haunt you. And that's exactly what the creators of the show want is for it to haunt you as a, as a completely unsolvable puzzle. And that's, that's sort of what I chose to walk away from primer with uh, is like, yeah, wow. Towards the end, these guys just really get in way over their heads and it becomes deliberately sort of muddled in a way that is like, really scary like it's super scary like what their lives become yeah. at the point that yeah. they're like drugging each other and all that kind of yeah. stuff and like yeah. that's just sort of yeah and and then like the, the sort of tone of like the last scene of the movie i feel like you know supports that pretty well because it's just so morally bleak and ambiguous um yeah, yeah ti- i uh, i'm trying to think of time travel media that i've responded to strongly and like i'm sure there's like a billion different things I don't know. I mean, Back to the Future 2 made an early impression on me like as oh, a yeah. as a kid. You know, and obviously like that movie is not is widely acknowledged to not be the gem of that of that series of movies or anything, but I just really liked how much fun they had with it, you know, and how theatrical it sort of was and was that like the one that your family had on VHS? No, I think it's the one that like I saw a preview for in the theater and was like, oh my gosh, they're making another Back to the Future. And like the fact that they went into the future of 2015, which is right. hilarious to think about mm-hmm. now. And it was this pretty, you know, it was a very, very designed future where they like had all these gizmos. And then it ended up, you know, at, sort of as a surprise, really, like wrapping back around to the original film's events in a way that sort of fully enclosed that narrative with another narrative. I mean, that's actually legitimately cool. Like, you know, I mean, it's, it's a pretty standard time travel storytelling trope at this point where like, you know, it, it's, it's an onion like layering of more and more of later iterations of characters trying to fix stuff and then staying out of each other's way and all that. But, um, you know, I mean for like, yeah, for, I forget how old I, you know, I was like maybe 10 or 11 or something when that movie came out. And yeah, that was like, I found that satisfying. It, you know, it was also like, it sort of acted as like this consumer fantasy. Cause I remember when 2015 actually rolled around somebody like they, they like actually made the Nikes that, uh, that from 2015, from the future that he wears that like auto lace up and have like this glowing light on them. <laughs> so, you know, I think it was, I think I was probably more susceptible to that stuff as a, as a kid, but just like, all the cool, you know, I mean, a flying DeLorean is still pretty cool, honestly, but the implication that you don't use your hands to play future video games. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Right. Elijah Wood, age seven or whatever, saying you have to use your hands. That's like a baby's toy. And then, you know, I mean, they missed the the Nintendo Wii. I mean, you still use your hands with the Nintendo Wii, but like, I, I well, I guess motion control, like connect and stuff. So they missed that by a couple of years, but. Well, they just thought they, they thought the Wii was going to be uh, ascendant and c- continue to be uh, the dominant form of, of gaming. Yeah, they were laying that bed in in 1989. <laughs> uh. <laughs> well, yeah, N- the Nintendo was dominant at the time. Like, of course, whatever Nintendo does in 2007 is just going to be 
that's the future yeah yeah uh, the other thing the, the thing i wanted to segue into um talking about time trap was uh the opposite idea of um rather than taking an interesting premise and then spinning out like um and then letting the the, the viewer like discover it along with the the person who discovers it in the story like seeing first you see one of the weird ramifications then you figure out what that means and then you figure out what's going on and then you then then you spin out like what are the ramifications of the premise as known um the other way to approach creating mysterious fiction which i think is more common is just to come up with a a mysterious thing that happens and then go on from there like creating a mystery like from the mysterious thing that happens first and then maybe if you're lucky the the, the storytellers will get to like what's actually happening but more likely they don't even know they, they're just gonna write more and more weird scenes yeah i watched lost yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> right i was super into lost <clears throat> And that was such a... I, I wasn't, like, super angry and disappointed at the ending, but I was... There were some disappointments. Right. That show, being very invested in that show. Lost was... So, I didn't actually watch Lost while it was on. Like, right around the time that I was considering giving it a look, people were starting to say, like, oh, yeah, it's it's going downhill, man. Don't... It's, I, I hate this show now or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does seem like it was kind of this public lesson about mystery-driven storytelling. You know, I mean, right. at least I, I guess I guess while Lost was going, I was working on the first Bioshock. We were really thinking about, like, building mysteries. How much do you show? What do you show? And all that kind of stuff. And then, like, you know, I mean, watching TV, it's almost like like watching a TV show where the writers don't know how a season is going to end going into that season or something. I mean, I think less and less that's how TV is produced now. It's, it's so arc driven and stuff, but the idea of like the creators of a TV show right now, they have the football and they are running towards the end zone with it. But what the hell are they going to do to get there? Like they have, they've created all of these like, obstacles for themselves ahead of them by by creating these mysteries that sort of seem compelling but then like oh but what is that actually how are you going to tie that up like man this is this is becoming a mess or like what does that mean or you know and and yeah and that and i think that puzzle tv instinct is happening on the on the audience side where they want it they they want you to to just spin them the most brilliant puzzle of all time and and you're just worried about like you know making Keep, you know, keeping your actors happy and like fulfilling what you feel like their character, like what what's true to their character and like where you want, what kind of ideas you want to touch on. I, I imagine it being super stressful, like working on a mystery driven show. And yeah, like honestly, like modern Doctor Who that like I kind of, you know, followed it for a while and sort of stopped watching because the general format of any given episode of modern Doctor Who is like there's a mystery at first for like the first, you know, third to half of the episode, there's a mystery. And a lot of times that mystery is like pretty enjoyable because, you know, they keep you guessing and they fake you out and whatever. And you're like, oh, what's, is this a monster? What's the monster's deal and all that. And then once they, once they, once they have to spell it out and like turn it into an actual plot that comes to some sort of resolution, it just so often just disintegrates into mush. And you're like, oh man, that, I imagined like five different cool versions of what this actually was and what you came up with sort of felt 
worse than any of yeah so like mystery driven storytelling is like i would have serious reservations about like undertaking like a big ambitious work of it mm-hmm. yeah know. yeah yeah it's, it's daunting in, in terms of like wanting to know where you're going when you start i've heard people talking about like the the breaking bad writers talking about how like they'll write each episode not knowing what's going to happen in the future and like they have to figure out every episode how do i write how do we write ourselves out of this corner and i get the sense that that's kind of a that's kind of a thrill in itself for them oh sure yeah like i honestly i think they did a pretty good job with it yeah it's it's a little bit like improvisation or performance you know it gets back to the, like that composition versus versus performance yeah. dynamic where you're spending years crafting something just so versus like i'm just going to get up and start playing yeah. Yep. Yeah. And I think for certain kinds of stories, the seat of the pants, not purely seat of the pants, but like the reactive improvisational sort of approach, I think for some some kinds of stories that can work better. I don't know. Like I remember watching The Wire, you know, 10 plus years ago and feeling like, man, every episode, I have no idea what's going to happen next because they've shown that like characters can die because this is like a violent crime story sort of thing and also just like this the the show didn't seem to care a lot about narrative tropes and pacing tropes so like something really significant could happen in the middle of the episode and then it just sort of follows you know the the end of the episode doesn't feel like a climactic you know this was before the era of of quote-unquote binge watching you know hooky keep you watching the next episode tv i guess right you know and in that case like yeah i i have no idea how that show was written specifically but like if it had just been reactive to like okay what's going to happen this episode well we've determined that this character is going to die or suffer some big setback and it's like yeah that i you know the audience would totally roll with that because that's kind of what they're signing up for and what you've you know what you've taught them so far whereas other things are like I think the, the more portentous you tell somebody something is, the more you're building, you know, the more you build something up, the harder you're sort of making your job. And sometimes that's good. You know, you want to you want to take that big take a big bet so that you can reap a big reward. But I think it does have that kind of dynamic to it. And, you know, a lot of times show I, I imagine showrunners get into this thing where they want to they want to do something really, really you know, just make a big boom and just shock the hell out of people and do something really, really audacious. But like that, that in, with mystery driven stuff that involves setting up like a string of dominoes, like around a city block and hoping <laughs> that none of it fucks up. Yeah. I, I really like the first season of True Detective. Mm. Oh yeah, me too. There are elements of it being like a mystery that the detectives are solving, but it's just more of like a larger commentary on, on life. And, and disappointment yeah. and, and corruption and stuff. And, and I think rather than it being super specific about the supernatural elements, I think it's a lot stronger than a lot of it is vague. Yeah. I, yeah. I wasn't, I didn't watch that show till later. Um, but I remember while it was airing the, um, the fandom really going nuts with their theories about like, what if Rust Cole is a vampire? <laughs> <laughs> like that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And watching it myself, I didn't get the impression that it was intended to be a mystery at all, like for the viewer. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. I, it seemed more like a straightforward drama to me. Well, it's like there's a case they're solving, but it's more about right. their interpersonal problems and traumas. Right. Yeah. I think, I think with 
any show, even if it's just completely uninterested in creating or solving mysteries, if it's engaging, then figuring out or just forming theories about what happens next, like where is this going to go, is just sort of a built-in enjoyment for fans. You know, I find myself doing that. Anything that I get into, I just try to, you know, I'll watch an episode and then I'll just kind of try to imagine what the next few things are as just sort of a way of processing my enjoyment of it and all that, you know I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like, uh, it's like getting super excited about a sports game. You know, you're, you're engaging with other fans and you're engaging deeper, more deeply with your, the, um, the media you like. Yeah. It's the sense of possibilities, you know I mean? That's, that's sort of the nectar that mystery storytelling is really trying to extract. But yeah, I mean, sports, you know, the outcome is not predetermined usually. Right. And, and so, you know, there's, there's just that genuine excitement of like, nobody knows how this is going to go. Yep. You guys ready to call it? Sure. Yeah, thanks for being on. Yeah. Oh, sure thanks thing. for having us. Yeah. Always a pleasure. Shannon, if this is something that, um, that you want, where can people find you on the internet? <laughs> uh, they can find me on YouTube uh, if they look up Strucci movies or if they look up Fake Friends Parasocial. I'm on Twitter at Plenty of Alcoves. I'm on the podcast Struggle Session as their film correspondent on like a lot of their film episodes. And if you go to criticalbitcast.com, that's the actual play that I'm on. Uh, JP, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? I think I mentioned it before, but yeah, vectorpoem.com. It's cool. You can say the website every episode. Yeah. Or maybe I'll change it or delete my website. <laughs> they won't find me now. Just, just fuck them up. Hi, this is Jim. This is the audio I append to every episode of Topic Lords. Congratulations to our newly anointed lords. If you'd like more people to hear the show, you can tell your friends about it or rate and review us on whatever podcast service you use. You can discuss the episodes at the Topic Lords subreddit at r slash Topic Lords. You can add content to the Topic Bucket by emailing topicbucket at topiclords.com. You can find me on the Fediverse as mogwai underscore poet at mastodon.social. Also, I'm on Twitter. And you can contribute to our Patreon at patreon.com slash topiclords. Patrons get episodes a week early and get access to the Topic Lords Discord, where you can discuss topics with all the lords that hang out in there. See you next episode.